Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The Arctic is seen by most Canadians as this vast, frozen wasteland. But with climate change underway, that territory could become more open, particularly to economic development. So, in 2018, China set out its official government strategy for the Arctic. Now, you have to remember, China isn't an Arctic nation. But they want to spend up to $1 trillion on developing the polar regions. The Russians are expanding their military bases in their Arctic territory. They've created new units to operate in that region. So should Canadians be concerned about this? Is Canada doing enough about its Arctic territories? We take a look at some of these issues on Defence Watch. My name's Dave Puglesi. You're listening to Defence Watch. Our guest today is retired Lieutenant General Mike Day. Mike has more than three decades in the Canadian Forces. Uh, He served as a senior military officer in the Defence Policy Group, as well as Chief Strategic Planner for the Future of the Canadian Armed Forces. And uh, welcome, Mike. Thanks very much, Dave. Happy to be here. So we read a lot about the Russian threat in the Arctic, the Chinese threat in the Arctic. How concerned should the Canadian public be? So... I think there is a concern. I don't know how you balance or measure that relative to other issues, but I think there's a wider context um, that allows us to understand why we should be concerned. And I think that's important to address. And if I can, I'll just, let's let's look at a couple things. But I think it's important for me, at least, to express my own personal bias in this area, which is I continue to believe um, that science has proven that the greatest threat to Canada is climate change, not just domestically, but but internationally. And, and I start with that, with the Arctic, because, of course, that fundamentally is changing how the rest of the world looks at areas such as the Northwest Passage and the Northern Passage. And look, I'm, I'm not suggesting that um, this is an overnight phenomena that we're going to start to see it to be a, you know, a fast route in the next handful of years, you know, but it is on the horizon and Canada needs to to think about that. I think that's the context for considering the, the threat from a timeline perspective. The second is, is the political construct. We as Canadians tend to think of as our Arctic, our northern region. The, the reality of it is Canada thinks of the archipelago and the internal waters as being Canadians. 
most international states, including the United States, do not recognize those as Canadian waters. So those two factors combined, I think, do inform the operating environment through which we should look at this threat. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it is it a military threat or is it more of an economic issue? So I think it's a combination of, of three threats. Um, and, and I would tier them pretty carefully. First of all, there is an environmental risk going on. As you start to see the Northwest Passage become increasingly, or I should say navigable for increasing periods of time, understand in the middle of winter, nobody's getting through there. We all know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to look at the Northern Passage and that's going to start at some stage to be navigable. And so you're going to see significant um, movement, freighter movement. If we accept that 50% of ships around the world carrying 90% of the world's economy, mm-hmm. 50% of their costs are in fuel costs. And if you take a, an Arctic route from the east to the west to the west to the east, you can save seven to eight steaming days. Mm-hmm. That's a massive economic benefit to shipping companies and, of course, the worldwide economy. But we, we already know, you know, that that's going to create a, a level of, of damage one way or the other. So we've got that, e- that, we've got that environmental piece. Mm-hmm. We've got an economic piece. And I think we are decades away from the North being exploited for mineral resources. And we, I don't think anybody has a commonly accepted model that talks about the mineral wealth. There's lots of scientific models. There's lots of economic models. I don't think there's been a rallying around that. So you've got that piece. The first two, quite frankly, are what inform the military threat. Like, the military threat is not we're going to invade Canada. Like, we're so far south Canada, right? It's an expeditionary effort just to get to the north. It's easier to get to Afghanistan than it is to get to the the far north, quite frankly. So the military threat is a consequence of the first two. Let's lose one example. You talk about Russia. Uh, Let's look at at China example. You know, China doesn't have a single ice-bound port. And it's building um, icebreakers at at a pace that is outstripping in pure tonnage most of the world. Mm -hmm. So I think the military threat is there, but it's not a direct military threat in terms of Canada's security. It's a consequence threat. Right. I mean, I remember, you know, they asked uh, former chief of defense staff, uh, Walton Atinchuk, he said, well, what would you do uh, if, you know, the Russians landed in, in the Arctic? And he said, well, the first thing I do is send a rescue force. It's, it is such a, you know, inhospitable environment that, uh, you know, I wonder if, as you mentioned, the economics of the issue are, are, seem to be the, the main thing. Right. So, so let's, let's briefly look at what Russia is doing to prepare for this in decades to come. You know, they've created an, uh, essentially an Arctic command. I don't mm-hmm. think they use that language, but they've done that. But you're right, you know, for a sizable portion of the year, unless you live up there, you're from there, mm-hmm. just on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute existence, I don't know if you've been up there, but it's you can be pretty miserable pretty quickly. The idea of operating, meaning moving around and doing things, mostly people just try to survive if they're from the, the southern part. Mm-hmm. So I, I think General Tinchuk has it right for today. Mm. I, I think that's absolutely right. So it's not an invasion of a ground force necessarily. It's a consequence of what else happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we know from our own history, every military history, that to develop true capabilities takes decades. And so we're not worried about that today. And we shouldn't be worried about it today. What we should be thinking about is, are we prepared for the eventuality 
in 20, 30, 40 years' time, mm -hmm. especially when we buy platforms, David, that last 40 or 50 years, mm -hmm. right? So you're talking, well, I mean, obviously our ice, ice capability uh, in ships, uh, aircraft, talking about, you know, unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, right? Uh, so they want to operate in the Arctic. Canadian forces want to operate those vehicles in the Arctic. But one of the problems is the icing, for instance, you know? I mean, how do you get around all this stuff? We do want to operate in Earth. First of all, we're directed by successive governments to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the Canadian military at all in a democracy needs to respond to that direction. The, the environmental challenges, again, I, I sort of compare that to a high, you know, hot, dry, dusty place like Afghanistan, Iraq, etc. Um, you can actually compensate for some of those things and you can fly and you can operate vehicles and you can traverse the terrain, you can have observation, etc. In the north, much of that's impossible. So you're right. So we have to think in, innovatively about that. You know, and it is about sovereignty writ large. And, and we need to remember that sovereignty is not just about claiming sovereignty verbally, politically, policy-based. It's about demonstrating that. You need to demonstrate that you have sovereign control, which is about observation. It's about presence and it's about response. Mm -hmm. So those challenges you, you talk about, you know, they're very significant. I'm not yet convinced that successive governments, nor the military, have taken on board the multi-decade you know, voyage of discovery we're going to have to go through. Mm -hmm. and, and drones are a classic example of this, right? Mm -hmm. Let's just look at the Just Us, now the RPAS program. Mm -hmm. you know, That's the uh, Canadian Forces uh, program to purchase drones. Right. And so this, is, this has been on the books for many, many years, yeah. and, and we've either made a decision that we can't fund it because the opportunity costs to other programs, or a current platform doesn't exist that would allow us to operate up there. Mm -hmm. But unless you start on these things, you're not going to learn the lessons, uh, and, and at some stage we need to start. I was up there last year on a military exercise. Um, I mean, the one thing that struck me was the, it seems to be, that you need to support the local communities there um, because they are your, not only your eyes and ears, but they're your sovereignty. You know, they're the aspect of your sovereignty, right? You have Canadians that are, are living there. I mean, is, so is this more of a kind of a, a, a overall government push? Should the, should the push not necessarily be with the military, but perhaps supporting those communities better? I think from a macro sense, if we want to truly claim sovereignty, you know, that permanent presence of people who have lived for centuries uh, up there uh, need to be supported. That support, you know, can come through connectivity. I, I look at the the current uh, military satellite uh, program, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's underway. That needs to be used for more than just military means. We need to support those northern communities. We need to find ways to make them sustainable mm -hmm. because their, their sheer presence reinforces the idea that this is Canadian territory, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you can, and I'm not suggesting we should, but if you can forget for a moment the moral obligation we have to Canadian citizens, yeah. which is, yeah. is not insignificant, but just set that aside for a moment because people have different views. Operationally, from a macro national perspective, it makes sense to sustain those communities. Mm-hmm. Using your crystal ball, I mean, where do you think is the is the future of the Canadian military in the Arctic? Where would you see them going? So I, I think you need to you need to think about it in three big chunks. First of all, communications. You know, we all know that 
communicating in the north based on the current constellation of satellites that are available mm-hmm. is tremendously difficult. And, and high-frequency high HF-type uh, communications is spotty at best. And so you've got to invest in an infrastructure that allows you to talk, communicate, support. I think that's on the books. I think that's underway. Um, the timelines for that, I, I think, are excruciatingly long, unfortunately. And certainly you could move a much, much faster to providing that. So you, you've got to have that ability. And that would actually um, help civilian infrastructure Significantly. Well, right? So you yeah. think about healthcare delivery, you yeah. think about educational delivery, you think about... You think about the ability to, to sort of, for e-commerce, et cetera, enhancing communications not only is a military capability, it's a necessity, but civil society, um, you know, demands that kind of support. So I think that's your first big chunk. I think your second is deployability. How do you get from here to there? I think that successive, um, you know, major programs, C-17s, our Herc fleet, our Chinooks, et cetera. I think that's actually gone a long way in the last 10 to 15 years of providing real capability that can get up there. And that's, you know, people think oh, that's just planes, et cetera. Like that's real, really significant. You know, it's not just buying planes. Capability really is the platform, you know, the actual piece of equipment, the people, the training that they have to go through. Uh, and the supporting infrastructure that's in place. And so you think about landing on a runway here in Ottawa Mm -hmm. is not like landing on an ice runway up in the north. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going to commit people and equipment to that, there's a train program. So I think that that's the capability piece to get from here to there. Mm -hmm. I think that's gone very well on the Air Force side. Um, I think that the Arctic offshore patrol vessel takes us a step further. Uh, you know, we can debate whether it has the types of capabilities it should, whether or not the the Navy could have balanced funds to make that more capable as opposed to try and preserve funds for the single surface combatant. I think that's a that's a done discussion. But certainly the Arctic offshore patrol vessel provides significant uh, capability. I still remain very concerned about the Army's ability to live, let alone operate, up in the north once somebody else gets them there. So I think that remains a, a bit of a gap. So I think that's the, the second chunk. And, and, and I think the third chunk is, is just the supporting infrastructure up there. So you've got communications, you've got the ability to deploy. Um, what do you have up there? Because what you don't want to do, I think, is try to carve out operating bases um, on an ad hoc basis, right? So it's okay once you go to Afghanistan to go to Syria, go to Mali, et cetera, to build purpose-built camps, you know, for the duration of a deployment. I think the Air Force has done a reasonably good job at looking at how they would deploy, what airfields they would use. You know, I'm not sure that, again, the Army has a concept of how they would establish an operating base and sustain it up north. Mm -hmm. I I think that's a bit of a gap. It's interesting you bring that up because I remember, you know, during the height of the Afghan war, um, I think it was the army commander had voiced concerns that, you know, the troops were losing their Arctic warfare capability, their their capability to operate in in the north because they were, you know, focused on this desert environment and the Afghan mission. So So you've got a piece of butter, you've got a piece of bread. You can only spread that butter so thin. This is the opportunity cost, right? If I do, if I spend a dollar of time, money, people, effort in one place, and I only have a dollar, I don't have a dollar to spend somewhere else. And so, what I think, I'm not sure which army commander it was, but I think I, I think, I think, it, I think it would be consistent through every senior officer to recognize that 
the Canadian military has finite capacity. I'm, I'm not arguing for more. Mm-hmm. You know, you get what you get, um, and governments get to decide where they're going to expend that capacity. And if you're, as we were in the case in Afghanistan for years, it was a totally consuming contribution mm-hmm. just to sustain that, right? So if you're going to do that, other things will, by necessity, not be paid attention to. Mm-hmm. And back to that, back to the idea of you just don't fly up there and land. Yeah. When you start to lose generational experience and exposure, it does take generations to gain it back. I always say to people, how long does it take to replace a sergeant with 20 years of experience? Mm-hmm takes 20 years. So if you have generations of NCOs and officers who have not gone up north, have not done a sovereignty operation, et cetera, who's training the next generation? So we have a footprint up there. Mm-hmm. Um, is it sufficient to recalibrate Canada's military capability up there? I'm not sure, but I think it's a valid concern by Pete or whoever expressed that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting. You you know, it's the, as you mentioned, the ability to operate. I mean, I remember doing, it was in 2017, they were supposed to, I was on this parachute drop. We're supposed to go up to Resolute Bay or whatever and then drop, you know, 100 paratroopers. Well, we got socked in Edmonton for three days because there was a storm and they couldn't, you know, they couldn't jump in, right? And then, you know, we do take off. Then the windshield of the C-130 breaks because it's so cold. We return. Everyone gets into a new plane, go up. And so they do the drop. The drop was supposed to have been in the day, but then it was at night, and it was still a little iffy because of the high winds. It, it's just incredible. And I don't know if Canadians kind of understand that that environment that both the military and the community up there is, is operating in. So, so Mother Nature's a bitch, right? Yeah. You, you know, uh, the North can kill you just by being there. And, and I, then you think about that. Any civilian, any military person can jump on civilian flights and get up there if they're willing to, as you just described, spend some time and energy, et cetera. But the, the predictability of response, the guarantee of response cannot be had because weather does have a dominant voice. The client has a dominant voice in terms of what is happening uh, up there, and you can only do so much, mm-hmm. right? So there are restrictions. And I don't actually care how much money, time, or effort you put into that. That will always be a limiting factor. Mm-hmm. So, so Michael, I mean, what do you think? Where do we go from here? What's, what's kind of, you know, your conclusion uh, about Canada and the Arctic? So, you know, David, I, th- I think it's important to have that single thought, to try to impress upon Southern Canadians some of the harsh realities. And, and I think we can enumerate them as in terms of a, a form of summary. You know, number one, um, climate change is going to affect our North. That change is accelerating. Number two, we take for granted that this is Canada. Um, that's not a uh, commonly held view. Number three, just getting up there and living up there, let alone operating up there, is is a tricky proposition. Number four, it takes decades to develop and maintain that capability. Wrap all of those things together and you get a takeaway, which is we're probably not paying enough attention because we don't need to today. But the problem is not today, it's for 20 and 30 years time. And we need to realize that and make those kind of hard decisions and investments today to make sure we're ready in 20 or 30 years' time. I think that's the big takeaway. Thanks very much for that, Mike. 
We've been talking to retired Lieutenant General Mike Day. Uh, Mike uh, served as a senior military officer in the Defense Policy Group, as well as uh, Chief Strategic Planner for the Future of the Canadian Armed Forces. Our next guest is retired Colonel Pierre LeBlanc. Colonel Pierre LeBlanc has served in a number of locations, both overseas and in Canada, during his time in the Canadian Forces. But much of his interest has been focused on the Arctic. In 1995, he took command of the Canadian Forces' northern area, which includes our Arctic territories, and served until his retirement in September 2000. He's been involved in diamond mining in Northwest Territories, and he's assisted various companies in better understanding the Arctic. Welcome, Pierre. Thank you. So there's been a lot of talk about the Arctic, China inroads in in the Arctic territories, Russia making uh, inroads or developing new bases. Should Canadians be concerned about that? Are we seeing something unusual here? I think the Canadians need to be concerned with what's going on in the Arctic. Uh, But the main factor is the disappearance of the ice. The Northwest Passage is still uh, contested by other nations because they claim that it's an international strait, which gives them the right of transit, which means that traffic from China, from other countries, could start going through the Arctic on a regular basis because the ice has disappeared. Now, the biggest threat in the Arctic, in my mind, is from an environmental point of view. We don't want ships that are not properly equipped to be transiting in the Arctic or harvesting any of the resources in the Arctic. Uh, When I was the commander, at one point, we had uh, Greenlanders coming across uh, to uh, Ellesmere Island to do hunting of polar bears. So, you know, they were coming in with skidoos, uh, didn't go through customs and immigration, and they were hunting uh, a protected uh, species. Uh, And that's one example. Now, if we were to have uh, an oil tanker have an incident in the Arctic, The Exxon Valdez, some, what, 25 years ago, cost over $2 billion U.S. to clean, and they only cleaned about 10% of the oil that was spilled. What if this was to happen in Canada? Mm -hmm. So as the ice is disappearing, it's important for the federal government to increase its amount of surveillance of the Arctic to make sure that what's going on in the Arctic actually meets all our environmental regulations and any other regulation, whether it be from Transport Canada, Um, aviation regulations and and so on. Mm -hmm. And so the Chinese interest uh, particularly is to find a faster route for their their trading vessels, right? Indeed. Yeah, Yeah, that's their main interest in doing so. Uh, The Chinese have been very interested in in the Arctic. They call themselves a near-Arctic nation. Uh, There were some statements to the effect that the the resources of the Arctic Ocean uh, should belong to to all nations. Uh, so they're trying to position themselves to, to be able to harvest some of the resources in the Arctic. It would probably be more f- fishing than, than uh, mining, for, uh, for example. Uh, but also, as I said, their main concern is really getting a route through the Northwest Passage so that they can ship goods in a cost-effective manner Uh, onto the uh, eastern seaboard of uh, North America. Mm -hmm. They have uh, interests that may not be in harmony with with ours. Mm -hmm. The Chinese are building aircraft carriers, and aircraft carriers are power projection piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. They're not for protection of their own uh, waters, if you wish, which they can do from from the mainland or from from the islands. 
when you bring in aircraft carriers to be able to project that power at a long distance. What does that mean for Canada long term? China says uh, in, in its Arctic policy, uh, it has all the very nice soft words in there respecting law and, and so on, except that when uh, an international court uh, came against them on a decision related to the Spratly Islands, they said, well, we're just going to ignore it. Yeah, exactly. 2013, they said, we will not uh, militarize the islands. Three years later, they did. What does that mean for, for the Arctic and their policy? Um, when their interests are more prevalent or more important to them, ours will take second second yeah. place. So, Pierre, you go back and forth uh, to the Arctic. Um, over that period of time, what type of changes have you seen as a result of climate change uh, going on? I think one of the elements that uh, I came across at one point, it, w- it was a, a reporter that was actually talking about, about uh, climate change and the fact that a lot of people now start to understand that it is taking place because in their own lifetime, they have seen changes. Mm-hmm. When I was in Yellowknife, uh, or just prior to leaving Yellowknife, we were seeing grasshoppers for the first time ever. Hmm. So In the summer. In the summertime. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas in the past, you never saw grasshoppers uh, up in the Arctic. Uh, so as the temperature gradients are going further and further north, uh, the uh, the ecology moves along with it. The fauna, fauna and flora is going further north. Again, in Yellowknife, the first year that I was there, the snow was very, very light, uh, and we had very little of it. Most of the Arctic is actually a desert to the same level as the, the Sahara Desert. But the last years that I've, I've been in Yellowknife, we now have wet snow, uh, which is an indication that there's there's higher temperatures in the Arctic, um, and higher temperature will will allow more water to be in in the air and eventually you know come down as, as snow. The Inuit elders talk about trails that they used to follow on the ice, which were safe in the past, and now a number of them have, have died because they've used those trails. But the ice is so thin that they go through and, and eventually perish. Uh, so we've seen a, an acceleration in this disappearance of the ice. In places where I would travel and see ice uh, in the spring, all of a sudden it's no, not there anymore. Uh, so you see physical changes of all the, the elements of, of the land, the, the land itself, the, the ice, uh, the animals, and the vegetation. There's trees that are taller now, than than they were before because permafrost is disappearing it's melting away uh, so now the 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 small bushes that we had can draw their roots deeper and now they're getting stronger and taller the disappearance of of the permafrost is actually part of the problem because it's now releasing a lot of methane which is 32 times more powerful as a greenhouse gas than CO2 we're very concerned with CO2 but Methane has now surfaced as you know one of the one of the big players in accelerating the the climate change uh, in Canada, and there was a recent report uh, by the Canadian government that uh, the acceleration of the temperature in 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 Canada is actually higher than twice as high as elsewhere in in the world and in the Canadian Arctic even more so. Mm-hmm. In, in looking forward over the over the next you know in the coming years what do you see as as I mean obviously climate change is going to continue um do you think do you see governments finally cluing in and 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 getting serious? 
They're starting to, to be there. Uh, many of the scientists were saying, stop arguing about climate change and, and who's doing it. Deal with it. And dealing with it means that, uh, for example, in, uh, in Nunavik, in the northern part of Quebec, a lot of the infrastructure was built on permafrost, which is disappearing. So now you have buildings that are starting to tilt and eventually break apart because there's no way that you can, you can secure that building anymore. The shoreline is disappearing. And in Tuck, you can actually see pictures of buildings. Part of the building is in the ocean. Uh, because they have lost 100 meters of shoreline uh, because it just melted away. And, and now the wave action is such that the, the buildings are now being uh, destroyed. Yeah. Uh, all of this is going to add cost. All the runways, for example, for air, airports, uh, many of them, if not most of them in the Arctic, will require extensive work to be resurfaced properly. And as more and more of the permafrost disappears, you're going to have to keep fixing it. Mm -hmm. So these are all direct costs that we're going to have as a result of global warming. And if we don't do anything about our emissions, ultimately we're going to pay in a different way. We've been talking to retired Colonel Pierre LeBlanc, who has served much of his time in the Canadian Forces in the Arctic and continues to have an active interest in that region. Thank you, Pierre. Always my pleasure. You've been listening to Defence Watch. I'm Dave Puglazing. If you'd like to share your comments or suggestions for future podcasts, email me at dpugliese at postmedia.com. If you'd like to see the digital version of Defence Watch, go to the Ottawa Citizens website. Defence Watch has been produced by Post Media. Sound editing by Mina Gamry. Our senior editor is Drake Fenton. Our editor-in-chief is Michelle Richardson. Special thanks to Keith Bennell. Thanks for listening.